just because you like weed and you're a lawyer doesn't mean you'll be a good weed lawyer or cannabis lawyer. The cannabis industry is enticing more and more lawyers. Some think it's cool to work with the new businesses, while others are seeing dollar signs. But you just heard that warning from Eduardo Provencio. He's a general counsel at a cannabis company. Attorneys shouldn't underestimate how hard it is or the risks they face in repping cannabis clients. I'm Diana Novak-Jones, and this is the final episode of Law 360's Legalization. In our first four episodes, we told you about how the interaction of federal and state laws create unique legal problems for cannabis businesses. We're going to shift focus now and talk about the lawyers that guide these businesses through that legal maze. In the last few months, a bunch of big law firms have opened up cannabis practice groups and general counsels from major corporations have left to join pot startups. But do they know what they're getting into? Because one thing that became clear to us is that they're taking on a ton of personal risks and problems that other lawyers just aren't dealing with. And they're putting their careers on the line in a number of ways. We spoke to Eduardo and some other attorneys that have been here for a while about how the risks have played out in their careers so far. They've burned bridges with other lawyers, narrowly avoided run-ins with the cops, and given up law licenses. But they all told us they can't imagine doing anything else. Brian Vicente is the co-founder of Vicente Cedarburg, one of the first law firms in the country to work only in cannabis. But before he put out his shingle, he was an activist. He told us about a time when he was out on Colorado's Eastern Plains, speaking to a group about the state's medical marijuana law. Then the local police showed up. The sheriff showed up with a couple uh, deputies and and interrupted my talk and, and said, and stood there right in front of me and said, if I had my way, I would take people that use marijuana out of their car. And then he gestured with his gun and said, and shoot them. He gestured with his hand like it was a gun. And that was very concerning to me. I had to drive like literally 90 miles to get out of his county after that talk. And I, I was scared as hell. I mean, I was driving the speed limit the whole way, you know, like that was concerning. We can't really talk about cannabis lawyers without talking about Brian. He's one of the reasons there are corporate lawyers in cannabis. We met up with him at his firm's Denver office. He's tall and slim, and he speaks really quietly. It's hard to imagine him yelling into a bullhorn. But his activism is what made Brian famous. We all remember when Colorado became the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. Brian helped write the ballot measure that made it possible. After the law passed, Brian realized there was a need for lawyers to advise all the new pot companies. He talked to five different attorneys at some bigger firms just to see what they thought. At first, it didn't go so well. Basically, four of those five folks said, you know, we we think this is not going to happen or marijuana has been illegal for 80 years. It's not going to change. But, um, you know, Christian Cedarberg, he was um, who's obviously my current partner and founded the firm with me. Um, you know, we met for lunch in downtown Denver and, and, and sat down and I kind of laid out my vision, 
uh, that, and I said, you know, this is not, you know, something where I can offer you a salary. I can't offer you any real security, but I do think that there, there's something here. And he at the time was a, you know, a 17th street lawyer at a you know, white shoe firm. And, and within two weeks he, he quit his job and, and, and sort of jumped in with me in this, this very crappy, uh, building that we, we rented an office in and, and we've just been, uh, you know, slammed ever since. So. And so a cannabis law firm was born. All Vicente Cedarberg's attorneys do is cannabis. Everything from advising governments on regulations to advising clients on getting licenses. They've now got offices all over the country, with more opening as additional states legalize different forms of cannabis. The main office, in Denver, is in the same space that once housed Colorado's cannabis regulators. So I had clients that would come in here to get, to get um, you know, licenses and would be arrested in this space because if you have you know, a, a background check, if you have a, a, you know, a warrant or something, they would grab you then. Um, but basically, when they moved out, uh, and that was the first state regulatory agency in the history of the world to regulate marijuana businesses, so they were right here. When they moved out, you know, we decided to move right in because everyone knows where it is. <laughs> The firm has this huge safe that the enforcement agency had installed in the office, presumably to hold all the drugs, guns, and money they were going to seize. It's a giant file cabinet now. It's clear Brian and the industry as a whole have come a long way from death threats. But even as cannabis emerges from the shadows, there's still plenty of extra stuff to deal with. He told us the firm is paying three or four times the going rate for their malpractice insurance, and they can't get a loan from a bank to help meet payroll in lean months. Every so often, a bank closes one of their accounts and gives them 30 days to clear out. Lawyers that work for the firm have had problems getting mortgages. And the high cost of running the business isn't the only concern. By advising clients on an industry that's currently against federal law, Attorneys are opening themselves up to criminal charges, civil RICO suits, and ethics violations. As far as we can tell, no attorney has ever been criminally charged for advising a licensed and legal cannabis business. But that doesn't mean the risk isn't there. Kimberly Sims runs a cannabis law firm in San Diego now. But stories from her early days in the space would probably freak out some lawyers. Unlike Brian, Kimberly wasn't a cannabis advocate who dedicated her life to the cause. She graduated from law school right as the recession hit in 2008. At the time, she had a roommate who was what we'd call a weed enthusiast. He introduced her to a friend who needed some pot-related legal advice. And she thought, why not? That first client led to a few more, who led to a few more. But after one sketchy situation, she had a realization about the career she was building. I found myself one time in Los Angeles um, running running to some different stores with them. And all of a sudden, one of the um, owners or gentlemen jumped into the car with garbage bags full of, of marijuana. And I was like, I feel like I shouldn't be here. This doesn't feel right to me. So, um, so there was definitely some early moments like that, and and really only needs to happen once or twice when you're like, okay, so we'll just meet at my office now, and I'm not gonna like run errands with you and your you know your black <laughs> SUV. When they started taking the bags of cash and pot from one place to another, she remembered, 
I'm supposed to be the lawyer. I remember thinking, like, I'm like a consigliere. Like, I'm riding in the back of this car. This feels like the movies. I want to keep doing this, but I will not keep doing this. Like, this is not a good idea. Although medical marijuana was legal in California, at that time, you could still get arrested for possessing, distributing, transporting, and selling marijuana. So the longer she was in that SUV with the garbage bags, the more she knew she had to get out. Understanding that the industry was incrementally on its way to becoming more lawful, it was not. And in that car, that meant that I was also at risk. And I knew that. Again, I was kind of committed to the night. And um, and again, it was, I felt so cool. But I also knew, like, this is not, this is not the way that I want my practice to be. This is not the type of professional that I am. She dropped those clients not long after that car ride. And she reevaluated how she was going to do this whole cannabis law thing. It was an exciting time. It was fast. It was sexy. It was risky. It's not like that anymore. Now it's boring suits and, and compliance and corporations and contracts. But even if her clients are now keeping in line, Kim is often taking personal risks just to collect her fees. Since so many of her clients can only deal in cash, Kim often gets paid in cash herself. It was more common 10 years ago when she first started, but it still happens. In addition to managing some pretty non-traditional clients like Kim did, lawyers also have to look out for another category of risks, ethical violations. The potential for running afoul of attorney regulatory rules is there even if lawyers do everything by the book. Because no matter what, they're helping a business break the law. Mike Rubin is a partner at McGlinchey Stafford in Louisiana and a frequent lecturer on attorney ethics. He's written about how regulators have dealt with pot lawyers. He says that so far, no attorney regulatory board has punished a lawyer just for representing a marijuana client but doing so expressly violates the American Bar Association's Model Rule 1.2. And the rule, as well as the comment, make it clear that you cannot engage, assist a client if their conduct is criminal or fraudulent. There is no distinction in the rule between items that are not criminal under state law, but are criminal under federal law. And you may not assist the client other than to make a good faith effort to determine the scope. So around 20 states have changed their rules to allow lawyers to represent these clients. States like Colorado and Illinois say that attorneys can advise clients on marijuana, even though it's against federal law. But many states with some form of legal marijuana have not updated their rules, which forces local lawyers to operate in a gray area Mike says there's not really a risk that those state regulators are Googling around looking for weed lawyers. But if the cannabis work becomes the subject of a complaint, the lawyer's license might be in trouble. The risk is twofold. One, a disgruntled client decides that the lawyer is not given good enough advice or proper advice and complains to the disciplinary counsel. And now disciplinary counsel can't sit on his or her hands. Risk number two is you're in a negotiation and the other side of the table decides that they want to turn you in 
and they want to point out that you're violating Rule 1.2. Again, in that instance, disciplinary counsel cannot sit on the sidelines. That's where the risk is. Here's the other problem. In general, if a lawyer gets into trouble in one state, they can be punished everywhere they're licensed. So what if you're doing cannabis work in a state that's fine with it, but you have a license in a state that isn't? Eduardo Provencio ran into that problem when he left a law firm for the cannabis world. He's general counsel for a Colorado cannabis company known as Mary's Medicinals. Yeah, I voted for legalization here, but I'm not really a consumer. Um, um, yeah, but it, it was the notion of the startup mentality and really truly being, um, at the time, you know, our company was cutting edge in a sense that we're probably one of the first companies to bring someone in-house. Um, so I was probably only one of maybe a handful of gen- in-house general counsels for a marijuana company, um, not without its headaches and worries doing that. But uh, Eduardo is from the more buttoned-up side of the marijuana industry. He's a former college tennis coach with a penchant for blazers and boat shoes. He was at a Colorado firm when he began talking with Mary's about being their in-house lawyer. He knew Colorado's bar was okay with attorneys working in cannabis. But Eduardo was also licensed to practice law in New Mexico. And in that state, the ethics rules were a little more restricted. How would his move into cannabis affect his license to practice there? Um, So I reached out to um, the ethics committee for for the New Mexico bar. I said, listen, I'm I'm going to work for a Colorado cannabis uh, uh, plant-touching operation. I am licensed in New Mexico. I've gone inactive on my license. I want to know if, if I'm okay. Eduardo's concern was that the ethics committee in New Mexico would discipline him for working with cannabis. That would get reported to Colorado, and then he might get in trouble there too. New Mexico had legalized medical marijuana several years ago, but the ethics committee didn't have a ready answer. They'd never dealt with this before. So the state assigned an investigator to look into it. It was a lawyer Eduardo knew. He came back with an opinion, called me and said, you know what, it, probably not the outcome you wanted to hear, but under, the, under our code of ethics, um, you're required to comply with both state and federal law. And you'd, you would be violating your license. In order to engage in the practice of cannabis law in Colorado, you have to completely withdraw from the New Mexico bar. Eduardo has some ties to New Mexico. He went to law school there. If he wanted to go back, he wouldn't have to retake the bar, but he would have to go through the entire vetting process again. That would give any attorney pause. After hearing from the ethics board, Eduardo went to his bosses at Mary's just to make sure they understood the sacrifices he was making. And I, and I told him about this experience. Um, so, I, you know, I'm willing to commit to you but I need to know that you guys are willing to commit to me and you guys, two, two months from now, you guys don't get buyer's remorse and say, you know what, maybe we don't need a general counsel. Maybe, maybe we can farm it out. Eduardo decided to withdraw from the New Mexico bar. But not long afterward, the state's Supreme Court officially weighed in and said lawyers are free to advise pot clients. That ruling didn't help Eduardo, though. The Ethics Committee withdrew the opinion from Eduardo's case but he still doesn't have a New Mexico license. But the license wasn't the only thing Eduardo gave up to be a full-time weed lawyer. 
He knew the choice to go into cannabis likely meant that he would be locked out of much of big law. He says he knows many big law firms that won't do cannabis themselves and won't hire someone who's worked in-house at a cannabis company. Despite, I mean, the amount of experience that I've gotten over three years here, um, I still wouldn't be considered a viable asset to them. Even, even as a, just generally speaking, a general counsel who's had to deal with corporate governance and you know, a general counsel for a startup, um, I would still be considered damaged goods because I'm coming from the cannabis space. Things are changing, though. General counsels from major corporations are jumping to cannabis companies, hoping to capitalize on the industry's energy. And more and more big law firms are trying to carve out a space for themselves, building out practice groups and wooing cannabis clients. And now they're coming to Eduardo to see if they can get some of Mary's business. But he's sort of torn about bringing them on. But it's also bittersweet because there were a handful of firms that were willing to take the leap of faith along, you know, with attorneys like me. Um, and you want to make sure that they still have the business, you know, you actually want to reward them for that. And, I, and I've had that, I've had that honest discussion with some of the firms that came in and pitched us, pitched us and, and you know, said, so, you know, just, where, you know, where were you two years ago? Eduardo and Kimberly Sims both say the weed world has room for more lawyers, but they want it to be taken seriously. Don't come to cannabis without the preparation and knowledge that you might bring to another industry. Eduardo told us about some lawyers that came to Mary's with a pitch. And, um, and they're asking, well, what kind of issues come up that, that you need help with? And we started to talk about a couple different issues that are very prevalent in the cannabis space, like 280E tax liability. And they stop me and say, hold on, hold on, what's 280E? And my response to them is, you know what, this is what it is, but I will tell you right now, go learn this stuff. I mean, before you go pitch, learn, learn these issues because this is what's important to us. Um, I know the work generally is important, and I'm sure you guys can do the regulatory work because you guys do tons of regulatory work in other areas. But these are issues that are really, that are, that are really unique to our space, and you should probably know about these before you go talk to potential, um, potential clients. It might have been a struggle at times, but the lawyers we talked to said they wouldn't want to do something more traditional. I love the sort of constant change and the you can always sink your teeth into something. And we're always putting together the puzzle pieces in a new way, especially right now in California, trying to problem solve for where the regulations perhaps leave a little bit for the wanting. And how do we, how do we structure a deal to ensure that we're compliant, but we're meeting the client's goals? This is just, it's a great industry and, and, and uh, it's, it's really fun. It's really fun to work in this space, be it legal, or finance, or operations, or whatever it is. It is just a completely different, um, it's, a, it's a completely different setup. For Brian Vicente, he sees his law firm as key to ensuring that the industry is what he imagined when it became legal. We basically exist to um, help businesses act ethically and responsibly to, to, to really cement this new industry and, and make sure that marijuana prohibition is just a uh, chapter of, of history, right? And so whether it's, you know, my, my um, 
admin answering the phones or it's someone drafting a corporate memo or it's someone looking at a lease, like they are contributing to making these businesses um, operate in a, in a legal fashion. And, and that makes this a sustainable industry. And Kimberly says the cannabis bar is super collegiate, a space where attorneys are willing to help each other understand dense regulations and first of its kind litigation. Let's all work to educate one another because the other issue is, right, if one person makes a mistake, it really does affect all of us. You know, one bad apple can really mess everything up for for the industry as a whole. So I say, come on, join the party. Just do it right. Just do it right. (laughs) And don't dabble. Thank you for listening to the fifth and final episode of Law360 Explores Legalization. Folks, this brings us to the conclusion of our five-part series on cannabis and the law. Everything you heard in this episode and throughout the entire series, all of the narration and the characters in our stories, it was all the result of an incredible reporting and writing effort by our senior cannabis reporter here at Law360, Diana Novak-Jones. Production and sound design of the series came from me, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Really, I just can't say enough about Amber and the guidance that she offered us throughout this process. We cannot ask for anyone better to lead us. So many others at Law360 also helped make this show possible, including Ann Erda, Ian Toms, and Ed Beeson. They had faith in us to take on this project, and their feedback throughout the process was invaluable. We'd also like to give a big thank you to the National Cannabis Industry Association, which graciously provided space at its annual conference to conduct many of our interviews. Music for this episode comes from Elephant, Unicorn Heads, Norma Rockwell, Freedom Trail Studio, Slender Beats, and Silent Partner. If you're just joining us for the first time with this episode, we have some great news for you. There are four other episodes that we think you'll love. Issues like taxes and banking and regulations, we cover them all. Find us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, we're on all of them, and subscribe to our show. And if you like what you heard, we'd love it if you left us a review because it helps other people find us. If you want to know more about the show, or if you want to check out a great set of feature stories written by Diana that accompany this series, check out our website at law360.com explores. Thank you for listening.